The forum Cato is hosting today is it's really just our opening salvo in, in what will be an important part of our work here over the coming months. Uh, the US Congress is, is due to review and rewrite uh, the Farm Bill sometime in the first half of 2007. That comes against the backdrop of when World Trade Organization members are taking stock of the suspension of the Doha round of multilateral trade negotiations. Those negotiations and the cuts to subsidies and trade barriers that were likely to come from them uh, were seen as an important source of pressure for reforming US agricultural policy. And with that pressure somewhat diminished, some interested groups have been calling for an extension of the current Farm Bill to keep America's negotiating powder dry and to prevent any uh, misconceptions abroad that the United States was prepared to unilaterally disarm. We argue here at Cato that these programs are not in fact assets to be relinquished only under pressure, but significant drains on the US economy that are inconsistent with today's markets and with America's international obligations. A farm bill with deep cuts in subsidies and trade barriers would save US taxpayers and consumers tens of billions of dollars over the coming decade and would yield environmental benefits by reducing overproduction of certain crops and stimulate innovation and productivity on farms. Cutting subsidies and trade barriers would also raise incomes of farmers in poorer countries and reduce global poverty, contributing to a more hospitable climate abroad for US foreign policy. A WTO decision in 2004 found that important aspects of the US cotton program instituted as part of the 2002 Farm Bill were inconsistent with the United States' obligations, uh, international obligations. But that decision has implications far beyond just the cotton program. It has shown that the subsidies conferred on numerous other commodities besides cotton are vulnerable to WTO challenge as well. Doha or no Doha, the WTO cannot be ignored. In fact, frustration with the absence of new market access opportunities through failed negotiations could spill over into increased dispute settlement uh, action. The administration, and in particular Agriculture Secretary Johans, seems to recognise this and should be commended for their commitment to trade liberalisation, including through the Doha round. The Secretary has also indicated that reform of agricultural programs need not and should not wait for the Doha round to conclude. While I'm sure that Cato's ideal farm policy would look a little different from the one that the administration proposes, Secretary Johans earned the ultimate accolade from a Cato scholar the other day when I was discussing with a colleague how pleased we were that the Secretary could join us today. And my colleague said to me, you know, as far as agricultural secretaries go, he's not too bad. <laughs> Secre Secretary Johans was governor of Nebraska for six years prior to his appointment to President Bush's cabinet in January 2005. The son of dairy farmers, Secretary Johans is graduate of St Mary's University in Minnesota with a law degree from Creighton University in Omaha. As part of preparations for the new Farm Bill, he has attended hearings all over the country to hear firsthand about rural communities' experiences of farm policy. We're very grateful to the Secretary for taking the time to speak with us today about the Administration's thoughts on the new Farm Bill and what changes they are seeking. Please join me in welcoming the not-too-bad Secretary Johans. <laughs> Mr. 
thank you, Sally. That's uh, that's very nice of you to say. I I don't even know where to start after that introduction. Well, it is great to be here, and I do appreciate uh, the warm welcome. It's it's a pleasure for me. It's actually an honor for me to be on the stage with Cal Dooling and Bob Thompson. Uh, you will hear from from them also, and uh, my thanks to the Cato Institute. Um, I. Um, uh, we always have at the USDA an Outlook Forum on an annual basis, and it's right after the first of the year. And this last year we had as uh, our keynote for uh, the evening event, uh, Cal Dooley. And he spoke about the farm program, and he gave such a rousing speech on reform. And kind of partway through it, he stopped and he said, you know, I have figured out why Mike Johans invited me here tonight. He wanted to look like a moderate. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've been asked to address the prospects for reform of U.S. agricultural policy uh, with or without Doha, so I'm going to jump right into it. Uh, let me, if I might, start with the first assumption, first that a Doha agreement is successfully reached, that somehow this process, which really is on life support, comes together and, and we have an agreement. And I'll add another assumption to that, and that is that it's within the parameters of the ambitious proposal that we tabled in October. Remember that this proposal was contingent upon significant gains in market access. With a Doha agreement along these lines, current U.S. farm pro programs quite simply could not exist as they exist now. Let me be clear about the fact that we'd still be able to support agriculture, but we would provide that support very much in less trade-distorting ways. Why? Because our proposal calls for a 53% reduction in all trade-distorting domestic support in U.S. agriculture. Now, bear with me for just a moment, if you would, as I delve a little deeper and drill down on our proposal. Um, it will help to describe what I am saying here. The 53% reduction covers the aggregate measure of support, known as the AMS, the blue box, product-specific de minimis, and non-product-specific de minimis. The U.S. proposal would have us make very substantial reductions in these categories. Uh, let me throw out some numbers for you. Our current base spending level would be reduced from the current level of $47.9 billion, and incidentally, we don't spend that much on our farm programs, uh, but it would be reduced from what we're allowed at $47.9 billion to $22 billion for this support. This breaks out as follows. Our allowable expenditure for the amber box is $19.1 billion, which we propose to cut by 60%. That would bring that level of support in that box down to $7.6 billion. Our current requirements to run certain programs, such as dairy and sugar, parentally consume much of this amber box allowance, not even addressing the other farm programs. But the marketing loan program wouldn't fit into the remainder of what's left in the amber box. This, then would require us to reconsider how those funds would be spent. Our base for the blue box is $9.6 billion. We've proposed in our October proposal a 50% cut. 
That would bring that down to $4.8 billion. Although we have not used this in the past, blue box is not an item that we've used. We have proposed that the blue box requirements be modified so our programs could utilize it. For each of the product-specific and non-product-specific de minimis categories, our ceiling is $9.6 billion, and our proposal would bring each of these to $4.8 billion, again a 50% reduction. Our current Farm Bill programs cannot achieve their objectives with these substantial reductions. So these programs would have to be reformed if we reach an agreement that reduces trade distorting support by 53%. This would cause us to rethink how we support agriculture. Viewed another way, we would have the opportunity to shift our resources to green box, for example, such as conservation. There is no current ceiling on the green box uh, today. I have said repeatedly as I've traveled around the world, I've been extensively quoted. I've said before Congress, the House, and the Senate that the bold U.S. offer would very clearly require real reform in U.S. farm programs, and I repeat that today. Now, we did not step out on a limb when we reignited the WTO negotiations in October uh, with this offer. In fact, President Bush himself established the vision for it, but, he carefully, but it was carefully and it was thoroughly vetted with Congress and our producer groups. Let me just mention as, as an aside, to their credit, Congress and farm groups not only authorized us to submit the proposal, but they argued for the proposal. They recognized the importance of trade to American agriculture and to the world for that matter. They know that agricultural exports are expected to reach $68 billion this year, and that's equal to about one-quarter of farm cash receipts. It's a significant item for our farmers and ranchers. Without open markets, the future is clouded for an industry that is so dependent upon trade. Without a Doha agreement, years of work towards significant reform would be lost. What do I mean by that? Well, although we don't have a final agreement, the Doha negotiations have led to a consensus on a lot of important issues. Before the talks broke up, for example, it was agreed upon that all export subsidies would be eliminated by 2013. This was a significant step, but one that won't be taking place without a final agreement. It was agreed upon that the wide disparity between trade-distorting domestic support levels in the European Union and in Japan and the United States would be diminished. Again, that's significant when you consider that the EU is authorized to subsidize its farmers at a rate four times higher than the United States. It was agreed that 39 least developed countries would be provided significant duty-free, quota-free access to markets around the world. It was also agreed that substantial improvements in market access, tariff reductions in particular, would boost economic activity around the world. Better trade opportunities foster prosperity. Developing countries are potentially large beneficiaries of an ambitious outcome from Doha. 
According to a World Bank study, roughly half of the global economic benefits from free trade would be enjoyed by those developing countries. Globally, 93% of the gains from agricultural policies would come from reducing trade-distorting import tariffs. A study by the International Institute of Economics estimates that global free trade could lift as many as 500 million people out of poverty and inject $200 billion annually into the economies of developing countries. Economic growth spurred by trade liberalization has tremendous potential for development. I would suggest far more than our voluntary aid contributions. Two-thirds of the WTO member countries are developed, are developing countries. Thirty-two are considered least developed, uh, truly the poorest of the poor. In those countries, over 70% of the poor live in rural areas, and it's agriculture that is the employer. They are the heart of the Doha Round. There is no question that progress achieved during several years of negotiations will have been in vain if other countries do not step up with ambition. Yes, without an agreement, opportunities would be lost. But I will tell you, opportunity to reform U.S. farm policy would not be one of the opportunities lost. It would not. The opportunity is as real without a Doha agreement, I would suggest to you, as it is with an agreement. The 2002 Farm Bill expires next year regardless of what happens with these trade negotiations. If there is no Doha agreement, I pose this question. Can a strong case be made for reform of U.S. farm policy? Now, some say no. We held more than 50 Farm Bill listening sessions across the country, and I will be very direct about the fact that some farmers encouraged us to simply reauthorize the 2002 Farm Bill and call it good. I heard that in Lubbock, Texas, for example. Really no dissension there. They want the Farm Bill reauthorized. Allow me to share with you a few quotes directly from farmers, however, who stepped up to the microphone and called for action. A gentleman by Rusty from Georgia said, We need to trade-proof our programs. That means expanding the kind of support allowed by WTO rules. From a gentleman called Joe in Illinois, we heard we would like to see a level playing field if at all possible. And from a gentleman by the name of Mike in Rhode Island, he said, we need equitable distribution of federal funds to the areas that do not grow program crops. So why are some saying keep the status quo while others believe so strongly that farm policy reform is truly in order? The answer can be found when we examine the effects of current farm policy. And I ask you to stick with me on this these are very important numbers. I want to peel back the layers and the complexities of farm programs and talk candidly about who gets what. Remember that old uh, TV program, Dragnet, I think it was, where uh, the officer would say, just the facts, man, just the facts. Well, I'm going to lay out the facts. In the U.S., five crops account for 21% of our cash receipts in agriculture. Those five crops receive 93% of our subsidy payments. Meanwhile, our specialty crop farmers 
which are now equal in value to the program crops, let me repeat that, our specialty crops are equal in value to our program crops, receive virtually nothing from the subsidy program. Ladies and gentlemen, these aren't insignificant amounts of money. We're talking about annual allocations of billions of dollars. Sixty percent of all farmers are all but left out of the farm program support because they don't raise a program crop. So we have one group that gets the lion's share of subsidies and another group equal in production value that receives virtually nothing. You begin to understand why farmers spoke passionately about the inequities in the current system. What I find especially interesting is that specialty crop farmers are not coming to me and saying they want to be treated just like a program crop. They're arguing instead that they would like us to do anything we can to address their needs by supporting research, addressing sanitary and phytosanitary issues, boosting market promotion dollars, in short, making investments that help them succeed in the marketplace. Apart from the inequities between the program and non-program crops, there's a wide disparity in the payments within the five program crops. I'll illustrate this point using an average of the 2002 to 2005 crop years. The subsidies, the cash payments, were distributed like this. Soybeans received about 6%, rice 8%, wheat 10%, 23% for cotton, 46% for corn. Here's another interesting statistic. Commercial farms accounted for about 17% of the farms receiving government payments in 2004. So some might say, well, then they received 17% of the total payments? No. Actually, commercial farms received 56% of total payments. And these are very, very sophisticated business-like operations. We must also consider the vulnerability of our programs to WTO challenges. Just yesterday, you might have read the news, it certainly caught my attention, about the declaration by, by Brazilian leaders that they are coming after our marketing loan program and our counter-cyclical payments, programs that are common to all of these five crops. Make no mistake about it, ladies and gentlemen, Brazil is not alone in threatening to challenge our programs. We lost the Step 2 cotton case in the WTO after aggressively defending it. Uruguay has expressed concern about our rice program, and the C4 countries in Africa continue to raise concerns about the cotton program. Without question, the U.S. will assign our best legal teams to defend our programs, but we have to recognize vulnerabilities. As I've said many times, a true safety net for our producers is more than subsidies. Good farm policy needs to be equitable, it needs to be predictable, and it needs to be beyond challenge. Whether or not we achieve the ambition of the Doha Development Agreement, we have a great opportunity in front of us. But decision time is fast approaching. I really believe we have a couple of options. The first would be to allow the future to be driven by WTO litigation that dismantles programs piece by piece. 
The second option is to grab a hold of these issues and craft farm policy in such a way that it leads us to the future with vision and foresight. It comes down to a choice between being the authors of true farm policy or being in the audience, as WTO challenges pull the safety net out from underneath our producers. I believe this important decision must involve the very people that are directly impacted by farm policy, our farmers and ranchers. So we did our listening sessions. We also asked for our, our economist, Dr. Keith Collins, to put out analysis papers. And so our economists at USDA have been very dutifully doing that over the past months. Please go online. They are great papers filled with a lot of information. I encourage anyone who is interested in U.S. farm policy, its impact on producers, whatever, to go online and look at the papers. Let me wrap up with just a few closing thoughts. At the risk of irritating some people in this room, who might not support farm programs, let me tell you I do. I have always argued, I will do so forever, that federal investment in agriculture is wise. It's worthwhile policy. But how we do it is enormously important. It should be done in a way that is pro-trade, pro-growth, and fiscally responsible. That's what's expected of us by our farmers and ranchers and our taxpayers. I stand ready to take on the challenge of helping to craft those policies. But I also challenge you to engage in the discussion. I believe we owe it to our farmers and ranchers to do more than just rubber stamp, stamp the policies of the past. We owe it to them to thoughtfully consider how U.S. farm, farm policy can help to set the future course of America's first industry. Thank you very much. Secretary's agreed generously to take a few questions uh, today before he must leave, uh, but in the interest of time, I must ask you to get right to the point of your question. Uh, if you could wait, we've got a couple of roving microphones. If you could wait until they um, come to you before uh, asking your question and state your name and affiliation first, please, Secretary. Okay, great. Yes, sir. Gary Blumenthal, Wool Perspectives, Mr. Secretary. Yes, Gary. Uh, in 2002, the um, administration would say, or some in the administration would say, that their ability to influence the Farm Bill was undercut by a desire, one, to pass TPA, and two, uh, to do well in the midterm elections that year. Now, in 2007, we may be trying to extend TPA again, uh, and there may not be as many in the Congress next year that will be willing to back the President. So the question is, uh, going into 2007, if we're looking at those trying to extend the Farm Bill, would you recommend to the President a veto of a simple extension? Hmm. I want, uh, Gary, it's a great question. I, I wouldn't share that with you today. Um, we haven't even put, put our proposals out. Uh, we intend to be very actively engaged in this Farm Bill debate. Uh, as you know, I've been working on it, uh, maybe not from the day I arrived but soon after, uh, we announced our listening sessions that uh, late winter, uh, early spring, and we've been all over the country. Um, so I, I continue to be very, very focused on, on getting good uh, farm policy in place, uh, the kind that does provide a true safety net that we can protect from WTO challenge. Um, but we are, we are so far away from that kind of consideration. Um, 
that it, to me, to be honest with you, it would be unnecessarily confrontational to suggest one way or another. Um, I have worked very, very well on both sides of the aisle, in the House and the Senate, and uh, that's my intention. Uh, foreign policy is is much more than lining up D's and R's. Um, some of my big supporters out there have been Democrats who believe in some of the things that we have done in conservation in our Green Box program. So, uh, And the nice thing about it, I'm fairly new to this. I'm new to Washington. You know, a lot of experience at the state level. So I don't carry any baggage into this. I just want to do the right thing for U.S. farmers and ranchers. Yes. Ian Swanson with Inside U.S. Trade. Uh, Secretary Jones, some people on the Hill have have expressed the sentiment that it wouldn't be helpful for the administration to put forward a uh, formal uh, proposal for a, a farm bill or formal legislation. Do you still plan to do that? And if so, um, what do you think the timeline is for that? We haven't made a decision about whether it be a standalone piece of legislation or outline of our proposals, whether we do it title by title. But um, we definitely intend to put proposals out. Uh, that has always been our intent. And, and to those who maybe are not as excited about that, uh, we will very definitely uh, work with them and and uh, argue the merits of our proposals. Timeline, um, we don't even have our last paper out. That's going to come out here in the next few weeks. Um, I think the quickest we would get uh, proposals finalized would probably be in the uh, time frame of after the first of the year, sometime in the January time frame. Yes, sir. Martin Hutchinson, the Bears Lair. Uh, in ni- the nineteen ninety six Freedom to Farm Act seemed to those of us who aren't that fond of farm subsidies to provide a useful way forward to gradually reduce the farm subsidies and perhaps sunset some of the more egregious ones. We then went away from that in two thousand and two. Is there any hope for us non lovers of farm subsidies of going back towards the nineteen ninety six legislation? You know, I was um, I was running for governor at that point in time, and uh, it wasn't 2002 where we started to move away from it. It actually was a couple of years prior to that when decisions were made to double amp to payments, and and uh, I think the largest infusion of cash into agriculture, I think in the vicinity of 30 billion dollars, actually occurred in the year 2000, if I'm not mistaken, and that might have been might have been the record. I've not checked that, but certainly was a very, uh, very large amount of money uh, that was put in that year. Um, In terms of uh, where we would move, I guess I would offer this. I hate to to say this is going to be the the base upon which uh, our proposals will be made. The base upon which we will base or we will create our proposals is what we heard from farmers and ranchers across the country. And what I heard is this. We heard strong support for our conservation programs. You know, a little bit of debate here and there, but not very much. Uh, Very strong support. Rural development was unanimous. In the over 20 forums I did, uh, I did not have a single criticism of what we're doing in rural development. If anything, people would like to see us do some more. Um, The subsidy programs really get a lot of debate, and, and I appreciate that. You can certainly go to parts of the country and 
and uh, set up a listening session. And Lubbock, Texas was a perfect example. Let me summarize the testimony there. Don't change a dotted I. Don't change a cross T. Just reenact this farm bill, and we're good. That, that was really what they were saying. And, you know, a lot of people said that. They packed the auditorium. In fact, that was one of the few forums where I don't think we were able to get through everybody. But I got the gist of what they were saying. <laughs> they just want us to do that farm bill again. Let me offer something that I said uh, yesterday when I was in Iowa. And I, I was talking to a group at the Farm Progress show, a group of farmers. And I really, I appreciate the jurisdictions of committees here and who handles what and this and that. But I would tell you good farm policy is so much more than a farm bill. What do I mean by that? Good farm policy, in my judgment, is a farm bill that you pass every four or five years. Good farm policy is good energy policy these days. 16% of our corn crop is being processed into ethanol. That's likely to rise to 20% next year. Uh, soy diesel, processed from soybeans, uh, biomass, so it's good energy policy. I said to him, it's also good tax policy. It is tax policy that says, look, we the government believe strongly that the more money we can keep in your hands working in that, that town and community in rural America is the best policy. You see, I fundamentally believe that a very key important issue here, let's repeal the estate tax. As we have seen land values go up and up and up, you become more and more concerned about families being affected by that. And so good farm policy is a whole list of policy choices that are made. Part of it is the farm bill, but part of it is the rest of what you do with the economy. So less taxes, pro-growth, good farm policy, and all of a sudden you start to see some hap things happen that are very positive. So instead of picking a farm bill and saying, well, I like this farm bill here and this and that, what I would suggest is let's look at the policy and try to adopt those approaches that really are good for America but good for agriculture. And I think we have, we, we can end up with great farm policy. Yes, ma'am. State Department, I'd like to ask you about sugar. You know, yes. whenever we do a trade agreement, there are three white granular substances which are quite legal that are the hardest things to deal with, and you know what they are. And uh, I want to concentrate on one of them, which is sugar, because we're looking at a potential transition in the of government in the trans in in the country that caused us basically to design the sugar program. How can we look ahead? and what we do with sugar to a market that may be substantially transformed. We have given testimony on the Hill relative to the sugar program. In fact, sitting in uh, the front row here is our undersecretary that works this area, a gentleman by the name of J.B. Penn. And I might add, uh, for those of you who know J.B., this is J.B.'s last day at the USDA. So... Uh, but he has worked the sugar program. And so what I'm going to share with you is not necessarily new or revealing especially, but again, it is, it is just the facts. Um, you know, we have the NAFTA agreement out there. And in uh, 2008, basically, we have uh, an open border with Mexico. 
uh, sugar included. We have been, according to the terms of that agreement, dropping those uh, tariffs systematically through the years. The testimony of Undersecretary Penn to the Hill, um, and was that Senator House? It was Senate, was Senate, um, which I agree with, basically said we cannot continue to operate the current sugar program with all of the things that are happening out there, whether it's NAFTA or whatever. There are too many things tugging and pulling at the policy there, and so we're going to have to think about how we uh, deal with the sugar program. Um, I would just suggest to you again what we suggested on the Hill, and that is for us to adopt a position today or in our proposals that says uh, nothing changes, uh, won't serve our sugar producers very well at all. Uh, it will sell them short. We have to think about where we're headed with, uh, with sugar. Today we have a farm policy that is very protective towards sugar. You know that. I know that. We have a 100% tariff. Uh, on sugar. Uh, it is very, very much a protected industry. The other thing I will share with you is this. Policies adopted like that have a cost. You know, there's, there truly is no free lunch. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, sometimes the cost is to the federal government. We pay a subsidy, we do whatever. Sometimes the cost is to the consumers in the United States. One way or another, that cost will work its way through our economic system, whether it's consumers paying it because they have a higher price for a given commodity or not. Uh, in the end, it's going to come out of somebody's pocket. It's either the consumer in the forms of a higher price or it's going to be uh, the taxes that are necessary to support the program. But we're already on record saying that program is going to have to change. We don't see how it can continue in its current form in the upcoming Farm Bill. It just doesn't seem, from a policy standpoint, that it will work. With that, uh, I think I better wrap up here. You have others who I wish I could stay and hear your comments, so uh, especially Cal. Next time I'm going to assist insist, Cal, that you go first. So uh, I look like the moderate again, all right? All right. Thank you, everyone. Our, our next speaker is, is Cal Dooley, who has been a president and CEO of the Food Products Association which is uh, the largest trade association serving the food and beverage industry worldwide since 2005. Uh, Mr Dooley served as a member of the US House of Representatives from 1991 to 2005, representing the 20th District of California. He served on the House Agriculture Committee and on the House Resources Committee. Mr Dooley is a fourth-generation farmer and partner in Dooley Farms, growing cotton, all above board, I'm sure, alfalfa and walnuts, neither of which are program crops, correct me if I'm wrong, excellent, in California's San Joaquin Valley. Mr Dooley earned a bachelor's degree in agricultural economics from the University of California at Davis and earned a master's degree in management from Stanford. Please welcome Mr Dooley. Well, 
Well, thank you, and uh, thank you, Sally, for the introduction. And I'm delighted to be back here at Cato once again. I just want to commend uh, Dan Griswold and some of the work that's been done at Cato. They put out a report not too many, too long ago on Ripe for Reform that I would just ask you to take a look at because it really does lay out a pretty compelling case uh, for why we ought to have some substantial reform in our farm programs. And and also, I just reflect on Secretary Johan's uh, comments just for a moment. Uh, you know, a lot of us who have been in Washington for some time, who have seen a lot of Secretary of Agriculture's uh, come and go, uh, who have listened to how they approach uh, the need for reform of our farm policy, I can tell you from my assessment, uh, there has never been a Secretary of Agriculture or an administration uh, that has gone as far in articulating the need for reform uh, that really has the potential to hopefully create a political environment that can really allow us to see uh, reform in our present farm policy policy. You know, I, I'm a, a strong adherent uh, to Charles Darwin's uh, theories, and uh, he made one statement uh, that it, it is not the strongest or the most intelligent of the species that survive, but the ones that are most responsive to change. And I think that is true not only for species, it's true for politicians, and it should be true for policy. And I think all of us understand that we are in an era of incredible change. Uh, you know, the dominant economic model that we see in the, in the world today is that of globalization, uh, which is characterized by speed whether it's the speed of information, the speed of commerce, the speed of innovation. And what we're finding is, with these new forces, is that we no longer have the luxury to institute national policies that are insulated from these forces. And so we really, all of us uh, that are in a leadership position, whether we're in the private or the public sector, really have to step back and ask ourselves, are our present policies consistent? with these international forces. And it doesn't matter if you like globalization or not. It is a fact of life, and there is no turning back on it. And so what I'm asking a lot of leaders in the farm industry, uh, is the, our farm policy today consistent with these international forces that we face? And I say, you know, if you stop to think about it for a minute, it was really back in the depths of the Great Depression when our Secretary of Agriculture then, Henry Wallace, uh, who stood up at a press conference and introduced our farm programs as a temporary solution to deal with an emergency. Uh, well, you know, that's been, what, almost 80 years uh, ago, and we are still dealing with uh, some form of those temporary solutions. And while there's been some modest changes, the basic structure remains the same. Which, again, begs the question, uh, are those policies that were developed back 75, 80 years ago consistent with the forces we face today? And my answer is clearly no. And I would challenge any leader in agriculture, I mean, whether it's the president of the Farm Bureau, the president of the National Farmers Union, uh, if they had a blank slate and they were asked to devise a farm program for this country looking forward, would it look like what we have today? Would it provide 93% of the crop subsidies and only five commodities that make up, as Secretary Joanne said, about 25% of our gross ag receipts? Would it direct those subsidies to only 30% of U.S. farmers, leaving out the better part of 70% of the farmers in this country? Would it allow only 10% of those farmers to receive 72% of the subsidies that are paid by taxpayers? With only 40% of farmland owned by absentee, with, excuse me, with 40% of farmland owned by absentee landowners, would we design a policy that resulted in the benefits being capitalized into land values, which provide marginal benefits to operating farmers, which increase the cost of production, 
it reduces our competitiveness, and in many ways it creates barriers to entry to young farmers. Would we design a farm program that encouraged farmers to hope for lower prices? You know, it's been some time ago when the New York Times wrote the article, I think it's been probably six months or so ago now, when they wrote an article and they quoted an Iowa corn farmer. And his quote was, everybody leans on the loan deficiency program as much as they can. It's like opening up the federal treasury. There were quite a few people this year that wished the corn prices would go to zero because they would have a bigger LDP. Now, can you imagine an apple grower in Washington, a cattle rancher in Texas, a hog farmer in Iowa, an almond farmer in California, ever wishing that the price of their commodities would go lower? Yet we have a farm policy that is directed to these five commodities that actually have that perverse incentive built into it. Would we design a program that failed to contribute to rural prosperity? A recent study by the Federal Reserve Bank in Kansas City found a negative correlation between the amount of farm payments rural counties receive and job and population growth. A statement from the study read, in short, farm programs are not yielding robust economic and population gains in counties where they should have the greatest impact. If anything, payments appear to be linked with subpar economic and population growth. Payments appear to create ever greater dependency on even more payments, not new growth. And would we design a sugar or a dairy program uh, that actually impeded the investment in the development and production of new products that the marketplace is demanding or undermine our international competitiveness? A U.S. Commerce Department report released a couple months ago found that our sugar policy has contributed to the loss of 10,000 jobs from 1997 to 2002 at companies that are producing products that use a lot of sugar. During that same period, employment grew by 30,000 jobs at food companies not heavily reliant on sugar. And the same study found that our sugar program is driving up food prices, which is in effect taxing U.S. consumers to the tune of $1.5 billion a year. Now, again, if you are being halfway objective and you are a leader in the farm industry today, your response to those questions would be no. I wouldn't design a new program that, looked, uh, that had these components in it. And it's distressing that uh, one of the most compelling arguments that we hear from a lot of our agriculture leaders uh, for continuing the status quo is that the European Union's farm policy is worse. Uh, but, you know, I just don't know, you know if what, is, what disturbs me more, uh, whether it's the Iowa corn farmers' statement or a French official's defense of the EU's market-distorting agriculture subsidies as safeguarding the Union's gastronomic sovereignty. <laughs> you know, it seems to me that's just common sense that if we acknowledge we wouldn't create, you know, the current farm program because of its obvious flaws, that we ought to be doing something new. And now when we have the apparent uh, collapse of the, the Doha round, you know, we're seeing a lot of political pressure for, to maintain the status quo. But I'm one who thinks that there is a very compelling argument, as the Secretary laid out, that the United States should unilaterally disarm and that we should have fundamental and significant and substantive reform of our farm policy. And I think there's some empirical evidence that 
farmers would benefit, even the commodity farmers. You know, we can look at what happened in New Zealand and Australia when they unilaterally disarmed and did away with their subsidies. And that you have these two industrialized countries of the world, the only two which see their, gross, their agriculture receipts growing as a percent of their gross domestic product. Because their farmers have found ways to become more competitive in the international marketplace and are actually increasing their share of that uh, market. You know, I wouldn't be such an advocate for a unilateral reform if there weren't the negative repercussions of the status quo. You know, trying to protect the status quo to serve the interests of about 25 percent of U.S. agriculture in some ways is, is holding back the 75 percent of U.S. agriculture that receives no subsidies that is willing and able to compete internationally. You know, when you looked at, you know, the, the remarks at Secretary, when you listened to the remarks of Secretary Johans, you know, if you can just look at it in the context of going through a grocery store. When you go through a grocery store, you go down the produce aisle, not one product there receives a subsidy. When you go down to the meat and the poultry aisle, you know, not one product there receives a direct subsidy. And yet every one of those items, those food items in the produce aisle and the meat aisle, are being offered to consumers at a great value, at a competitive price, both domestically as well as internationally. We have demonstrated that 75% of U.S. agriculture today can be competitive both domestically and internationally without the need of taxpayer subsidies. And when we look at what the other ramifications of continuing the status quo is, we're basically giving license to the EU to continue to provide their $60 billion in subsidies, far in excess of what we do. We're continuing to sanction, in effect, Japan continuing to have their 500% tariff on rice. Because if we're not willing as a country to lead on the significant reform, we are going to basically allow other individuals, other countries, to continue their even more market-distorting policies. And when we look at the fact that how dependent we are on trade, we can just look at the recent trade numbers that came out uh, that demonstrated that we're going to have a record year in exports in agriculture today, that are, or this year, which are going to go to about $68 billion. They're projected in the next year to go to about $74 billion. Uh, you know, this is a significant market. You can look at the fact that we export 68% of our cotton, 38% of our soybeans, 75% of our almonds. We need these export markets. And I think one of the most argue, uh, obvious arguments in this respect is that when you just consider the fact that we have only 4% of the world's population inside our borders. And as I do with every crowd and when I make these remarks, I say look to the person on your left, look to the person on your right, and look around you a little bit and do an assessment. And I think you'll conclude, in this United States, we just can't eat anymore. And we need to find a way to access the 96% of the world's population that do have an opportunity to enhance their diets. When you look at the fact that we got, I think it's almost uh, half the world's population living on $2 a day, and every dollar in per capita income that you see uh, 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 additional in that developing world, at least 30% of it will go to the purchase of food products. And that's the market we ought to be looking at. The other empirical data is clearly evident in what you see what's happened in China just in the last, uh, uh, last decade. You know, it was about, I think in 1997 or so, we were shipping about $2, billion, or 2 million tons of soybeans to China. And this last year, 2005, we shipped 12 million tons of soybeans to China. 
And why did they start demanding you know, more and more of our soybeans and other feedstocks that we were shipping to them? Well, they started demanding it because they also saw during that same time period a, a 300% increase in their meat consumption. In every case, when you've seen greater economic development in the develop, developing world, there is a direct correlation to the increased consumption of meat protein. And when you start stepping back and see who has the relative advantage in the world to meet those needs, the United States is uniquely positioned to be the supplier of the feedstocks as well as the meat protein to meet this demand in the developing world as their economies improve. So I'm one who believes the next golden age in agriculture is really going to be reliant on policies that facilitate, accelerate, and enhance the economic development in the developing world. And that's why we need a successful Doha round. And that's why we need to unilaterally move forward with removing our farm policies, which, con which contribute to significant market distortions that do not allow uh, these uh, countries, the developing countries, to capitalize on their relative advantages. So, you know, where do we go from here? Um, you know, I thought it's kind of interesting. The secretary, I couldn't help but to relate to his comments on his hearing sessions. When I was in Congress for 14 years, I had a few town hall meetings. It was no surprise uh, generally what the response was from the people who attended. You know, I am not surprised at all if you would have a hearing on continuation of our farm programs in Lubbock, Texas, or the Delta. Uh, they're going to say, you know, these are pretty, pretty nifty the way they're designed now. Uh, if you wanted to go into Florida and have a, a hearing on terms of reform of our sugar program, we shouldn't be surprised that people would say, nope, the status quo looks really good just the way it is. But, you know, it would be interesting if we could have a hearing, say, in New Orleans uh, right now and say, do you think uh, that it's appropriate that we be providing upwards of $20 billion a year of which – the vast majority of that money is going to families that have an average net worth that is two and a half times the average worth of the family in the United States. It'd be interesting if we would have a hearing maybe a few blocks from here, maybe a little bit north or, or you know, north and, and, and east of here, uh, and have a hearing with some of the residents in D.C. and say, do you think we ought to maintain our current farm programs that really result in you paying $146 additional a year for the groceries you purchase. And the same time to support, again, families, again, that are relatively well off by the standards in this country. I think you would find that there would be overwhelming opposition for the continuation of the status quo. So we have a challenge, those of us who want reform. And we have some folks here. We have Ken Cook of the Environmental Working Group that's here. We've got Rich uh, Schwartz is also joining us here. We've got uh, Ann Tutwaller was doing some work with the Hewlett Foundation. There's Ralph Grossi with the American Farmland Trust. There's a lot of people that are interested in how do we put together a coalition that can effectuate a reform of our farm policy and overcome the entrenched politics that we are facing. You know, I'm one who thinks that you have to put together a package. I, I think we haven't been successful in achieving reform in the past because we haven't presented an alternative to a lot of urban and suburban legislators to say, 
you know, this is something that is more consistent with the interests of your own constituencies as well as the interest of the, uh, the broader interest of the United States. And that's the challenge. It has to include a component that includes a, some type of a safety net. And I would just like to commend the work that Scott Faber with the Environmental Defense has done in terms of trying to put together what is a form of a farm savings account that gives us a lot of flexibilities and maybe contributing a declining series of transition payments to wean some farmers off of the current programs into these accounts that might have some tax uh, uh, advantages. It could be another tool that you could uh, contribute some environmental uh, payments in that also farmers could use. It also could provide an opportunity to farmers to invest some of their own funds in to order to manage the volatility that they face in the marketplace. And I also think there's a way to, that we can build this coalition by working with our friends in the environmental community to find those ways in which we can design our environmental programs, our conservation programs, that really do contribute to multiple objectives. One, meeting some of the interests of the farmers to help them transition out of some of their production on their environmentally fragile lands, but also to meet a broader societal objective in what we can do to enhance our environment, whether it's wildlife habitat or our watersheds. And I think there's also the opportunity to reach out and build a stronger coalition with rural development. You know, there's a lot of attention in terms of what we can do in terms of uh, biofuels and uh, renewable energies. Uh, just with one note of caution here, I think we have to be careful that we take somewhat of a market-oriented approach there, too, and try to define the role of the, of the government there to hopefully maybe provide the support that in facilitates investment in rural America to help this industry develop to the point where it can be competitive and not to find ourselves entrenched with another ongoing subsidy that becomes very difficult to extricate ourselves in the, in the future. But a carefully crafted plan that facilitates and enhances the investment in rural America in the production of biofuels has the potential to provide environmental benefits and also security benefits to make us less reliant on the importation of oil. And I'm one who obviously is a strong supporter, too, of research. Uh, I oftentimes tell the story when I left the farm, uh, uh, we were producing about two bales the acre of cotton. Uh, and uh, I left the management of it and turned it over to my cousin. About 10 years after I left the active management of it, I went back to my cousin. We were chatting again. He was very proud of the fact that we are now doubled our production to four bales to the acre. Now, he would attribute that almost exclusively to the fact that they had superior management and they got rid of the dead weight. Uh, but in fact, it was primarily a result of enhanced technology that was a result of research, whether it was new varieties uh, or cultural practices that contributed to our ability to enhance our level of productivity, to lower our per unit cost of production, and to make us more productive or more competitive internationally. And there's also a way to expand our coalition, too, that includes a lot of the non-governmental organizations that are committed to advancing the interests of our least and developing countries worldwide. To understand that by the reform of our foreign policies, that they are also going to see the benefits manifested and the ability to see the growth in the incomes of a lot of the people in some of the more poor countries of the world. So if you step back and, you, you know, if you really look at this and you say, if we do our homework here, you know, if we put together the 75 percent of agriculture that currently doesn't benefit 
from the farm programs and say, you need to be a part of these programs because we're going to find a way to give you the appropriate level of assistance. If you can reach out to the environmental community and say, we're going to make this program more responsive to your needs, you reach out to rural America, you reach out to even some opportunities in the nutrition community and the academic community and the NGO community, you can see the way that we can build a strong foundation. And we can also reach out to Cato, the Heritage Foundation, the Club for Growth, that would understand that when we move in this direction, we're going to be moving in a more market-oriented direction that also would serve, uh, would be a, a policy that would be much more consistent with their interests. So I'm one who's cautiously optimistic uh, that we have a political environment that gives us an opportunity to really achieve significant reform. Uh, but it's going to dedicate all of those of us who are part of this reform effort to understand that, you know, we won't get the perfect uh, uh, but we're going to get something uh, that is certainly going to be a lot better and a lot more consistent with the international forces that we have to compete in. Not quite as tall as you. <laughs> Thanks, Mr. Dooley. Our final speaker today is Professor Robert Thompson, who holds the Gardner Chair in Agricultural Policy at the University of Illinois. One of America's foremost experts in agricultural policy, Professor Thompson is a member of the Agricultural Policy Advisory Committee, which works with the United States Trade Representative and the United States Department of Agriculture. As a member of the International Food and Agricultural Trade Policy Council, he has been active in the global debate on WTO agricultural trade issues. Professor Thompson formerly served as Director of Agriculture and Rural Development at the World Bank and was Senior Staff Economist for Food and Agriculture at the President's Council of Economic Advisers in the mid-1980s. Please join me in welcoming Professor Thompson. Thank you very much, Sally, and good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I am very pleased and honoured to be invited uh, to the, uh, address this uh, audience. Uh, I should mention that uh, during that period in the mid-'80s when I was at the Council of Economic Advisors, Bill Niskanen, the chairman of the Cato Institute, was my immediate boss. So uh, I'm uh, uh, particularly pleased uh, that Bill's here in the audience. But I, this morning, to address the future of agricultural policy in the United States, I want to first start out uh, with, uh, with addressing some of, the, uh, some of the objectives that are stated for farm policy talk about the failure of our current policies to uh, live up to those objectives. Then I want to talk a little bit about some of the factors that are pushing for preserving the status quo in the next Farm Bill, and then we'll turn to some of the, uh, some of the uh, factors that could drive change. But there are basically five objectives that are stated for agricultural policy uh, by its advocates. Farm family incomes are low. Farm incomes are variable. Uh, we need to ensure our competitiveness. We need to ensure our food security. We need to foster rural economic development. Okay, let's take these in order. Low farm family income. Well, you look at the data, and uh, in the last several years, farmers have earned significantly more on average than the median family income in the United States. Uh, average wealth is substantially higher than that of uh, the average American citizen. And if you are worried about low-income uh, farmers, uh, they're not the smallest farmers. Those are rural residence farms, and they earn well above the median family income from non-agricultural sources, so they don't need the help. Now, there are some income problems among small or among medium-sized uh, family farms that aren't big enough to generate a comparable level of income. 
but because they don't produce very much and don't sell very much, they don't get very much out of the programs. Therefore, we have to say that the programs do not address the low farm family income uh, argument. Variability of farm income. Agriculture is a highly capital-intensive industry. In fact, the, ca uh, the capital intensity in agriculture is about twice that of the manufacturing sector of the United States today. Uh, so highly variable income, uh, when most of the agriculture is financed through debt financing instead of equity financing, could cause problems. But yet we have options. You, farmers can buy puts and calls. They can, uh, can buy futures contracts. Uh, we have income averaging. Farmers are the only business left in the United States that's allowed income averaging uh, when they file their income tax. And farmer, most farmers use cash accounting, so there's a lot of flexibility to slide revenues and costs back and forth between two tax years. So maybe there's an argument of variability of income, but there are already a number of instruments available, both through the tax code as well as the market, uh, to address those issues. Increased competitiveness. Well, when we look at who the real ultimate beneficiaries of farm programs are, they're the farmland owners. Uh, the, the benefits of the programs get capitalized into the price of farmland, and, and in fact, this becomes a barrier to entry to the next generation of young farmers, but it also raises our long-term cost of production and undercuts our international competitiveness. So I would argue that it tends to fail that, uh, that test. If we're really concerned about competitiveness, we ought to be concerned about productivity. Kel uh, was just addressing that, that, that issue and the importance of those increases in yields to, uh, uh, to ensure that we maintain our competitive position vis-a-vis -vis others in the world market. Uh, but yet public investments in agricultural research have been declining in real terms over the last two or three decades. Food security. Well, I would argue food security is not a very credible uh, concern in the United States where we produce a third more than we eat. Uh, we, we have a huge de uh, export dependence in American agriculture. The, pro the production of one acre out of every three is exported. About uh, one dollar out of every four dollars of revenue comes from the export market. So it's pretty hard to argue that we'd have food security problems uh, if we didn't have farm programs. And rural development? which I take as creation of non-farm employment in rural areas uh, to address probably the most effective means of solving the problem of rural poverty that we've had in the United States is for most of the small or lower income farmers to become part-time farmers. Well, the farm programs, if, any, if they've done anything with respect to rural development, have uh, facilitated or accelerated the rate of consolidation of farms, reducing the number of jobs on farms, and certainly haven't done anything to create employment off the farm in rural areas. So at least on these five arguments, the only one that has any possible uh, justification today is uh, that farming is inherently a risky business, that incomes are highly variable, but we can debate whether or not there are adequate instruments in the market and the tax code to take care of that problem. Okay, what are the factors that uh, are working to preserve the status quo? Well, as the Secretary said, if you go out into the countryside uh, where program commodities, the five commodities that get 93% of the benefits are produced, most farmers say, keep it coming. Uh, we like that check in the mailbox, and uh, uh, we wouldn't change a word in the farm bill. There's generally inertia in farm programs. We never make revolutionary changes in agricultural policy. Agricultural policy normally changes in a pretty uh, uh, step-at-a-time manner. 
Politics are probably going to work against reform of foreign policy next year. We have to remember if we look at the red and blue county map, now you're all familiar with the red and blue, red and blue state map uh, showing which state had majority Republican and which states had majority Democratic votes. But if you look at the red and blue county map, rural America is awfully red. In fact, rural areas increased the margin by which they voted for President Bush in the last election. Urban areas decreased their margin in which they voted for the president. So I can, I can conceive that uh, Karl Rove is not going to allow anything to happen that would risk losing any of those red votes in rural areas. And I doubt if the Democratic Party, who'd like to pick up some of those votes, is likely to do anything to reduce the likelihood of getting uh, those rural votes either. And we also have to remember that Iowa has one of the first uh, presidential primaries, and no aspirant to the presidency is going to utter a word against farm programs in Iowa for fear of being an early casualty uh, in the presidential campaign. The agriculture is a generous campaign contributor. In fact, you look at the four most subsidized commodities, the four white goods, sugar, milk, uh, rice, and cotton. They're right at the head of the list in terms of the size of campaign contributions in uh, federal election cycles. So uh, agriculture is, can at least get its voice heard uh, uh, in, on Capitol Hill and in the White House. And there is a fear of causing a land price collapse. I think it is increasingly being recognized by uh, members of Congress that in many of their district, uh, rural districts, there is a significant amount of land value that is dependent on farm programs. Uh, that land is most farmers' retirement account. And uh, I think there's a genuine concern and probably appropriate in states that are distant from urban development potential uh, that to avoid uh, any possible uh, cause of causing of a land price, uh, a land price drop. But these are the forces that I see uh, impeding reform of agricultural policy in 2007. There are a number of factors, though, that could drive change. And I think the first is the recognition that our current programs are not achieving their stated objectives. Uh, there is a drumbeat of editorial comment in uh, the, the major metropolitan dailies and a lot of the smaller dailies around the country uh, against farm programs. Uh, we've, we've had the, the cover stories in the Washington Post of late about the evils of farm programs. So there are a number of forces that are... Uh, um, that are at least raising the, raising the visibility of the public that the programs are not measuring up to their stated objectives. The federal budget deficit is cited by many people as a force that will drive change. Now, we certainly have a problem with the federal budget deficit, but personally I doubt if it's going to be a driver. The, the Farm Bill that I worked, the 1985 Farm Bill, you may recall, was passed a little bit after the Graham-Rudman-Hollings Bill, uh, which was the last time we did anything serious about budget deficit reduction, uh, and yet uh, we author Congress authorized a farm bill that authorized the highest agricultural program payments in history up to that point, uh, within weeks after the Graham-Rudman-Hollings bill was passed. So I really don't think there is likely to be a binding budget constraint. There, isn't cer there certainly isn't going to be more money available for rural America, but I doubt if there will be that much of a reduction. Next force that might drive change is agricultural solidarity seems to be fragmenting. Historically, the commodity groups and the general farm organizations have worked very well together, have supported one another's interest. This is easy when there's no binding budget constraint. 
Uh, but we're starting to see fragmentation. Uh, when sugar opposed the CAFTA agreement, you had the fragmentation or, uh, opening up between sugar and everybody else. Uh, the fruit and vegetable industry uh, and, the, and the program commodities have parted ways. And you have some fragmentation between north and south or between cotton and rice and soybeans and corn. So I think there is a divided voice in agriculture that's going to make it more difficult to preserve the status quo. And finally, the international pressure. Um, we, have the, we have had the, the, the pressure from the WTO trade negotiations. We also have pressure from the WTO cotton case, uh, which the U.S. lost, which ruled that many of the provisions of not only cotton, but rice, corn, soybeans, wheat, sorghum, etc., are uh, inconsistent with their international obligations under the Uruguay Round Agreement on Agriculture. And we do have to recognize that the Uruguay Round Agreement will be the uh, will uh, set the rules of the road of international trade uh, until and unless there's a future trade round that changes those rules. So uh, those are the rules we'll be operating under, and we expect to see uh, more litigation brought against those other commodities than cotton. So even though we uh, we seem to have at least a pause uh, for a time being in the Doha Round. Uh, I think the, the threat of litigation will also help drive change. Now, turning to, uh, to the export market, the need to preserve competitiveness, uh, Congressman Dooley already addressed the importance of exports to American agriculture. Um, and uh, let me just amplify one point that, uh, that he made, and that is the importance of accelerating broad-based economic growth in presently low-income countries. 96% of the consumers of food are outside the U.S., but what, uh, what's really important when you look at growth potential is the 50% increase in the world population that's projected in the first half of the 21st century will, al will almost be entirely in low-income countries. The population of Europe is projected to decline by 10%, of Japan by 22%. So these highly protected markets that we're so intent on bashing open are the markets of the past. There's no growth potential in those markets. They're aging populations. Older people don't eat as much. They're shrinking populations. They're high income. If they get more income, they aren't going to eat anymore. Uh, so there'll be no increase in demand for food. So all the future potential is in the presently developing countries, but only if they enjoy economic growth that lifts some of those half the world's population, over 3 billion people who are living on less than $2 a day, who can't afford to eat fruits, vegetables, meat, edible oils, uh, and uh, when and if they are lifted out of that poverty, uh, then there is significant growth potential from, from income growth on top of the population growth, and as a result, uh, I see a potential for total food demand to double in the first half of the 21st century, with half of that growth coming from population growth and the other half coming from income growth. Okay, now, look, now moving more immediately towards the 2007 uh, Farm Bill. One factor that will have an overriding influence is current market conditions when the Farm Bill is written. Uh, we can't know for sure what they will be, but uh, throughout uh, the history of farm bills, uh, expectations have been myopic at the time the bills have been written, and the current conditions in the markets have an overriding force. Just let me give you an example that's happened this summer. 
FAPRI came out with their new baseline projection in July that showed that uh, with the ethanol growth that the price of corn is probably going to be high enough that corn growers will get very little from the loan deficiency payments and countercyclical payments. Guess what? Two weeks ago, the national corn growers have uh, changed their policy position. They have, they have stopped supporting extension of the 2002 Farm Bill and are now advocating a revenue insurance program, as several other groups are. Basically, because current market conditions have changed, it doesn't look like they would get much from those uh, present programs in the future. They got $9 billion last year, uh, and uh, as a result, they've changed their position. Okay, what are the key issues now as, uh, to wrap this up? The key issues as I see it are first, to what extent are we going to continue to distribute the benefits of our farm programs uh, in payments that go to individuals? And as you've heard from the Secretary and Congressman Dooley, these benefits are highly concentrated on a, on a subset of the individuals who are in agriculture. But to what extent will the payments continue to go to farmers as individuals, and to what extent will they, will they be invested for the greater good of the farm sector and rural America in the future? In things like research, like infrastructure that will facilitate rural development, like conservation. Second, to what extent will we continue payments that are trade distorting, amber box in, uh, in WTO parlance, but basically payments that are distributed in proportion to current production or current market prices, or inverse proportion to current market prices. To what extent will that continue, or will we shift what payments we make into the so-called green box, payments that are decoupled from production of specific commodities, and will in turn be, uh, uh, be viewed as uh, WTO compatible. And third, the threat of litigation in the WTO with the breakdown of the Doha round, I think, is significantly increased. As the Secretary indicated, the U.S. had engineered in the framework agreement in the WTO round uh, a redefinition of the blue box to allow us to slip our countercyclical payments in there. We don't have a new blue box with the breakdown of the negotiations. We don't have a peace clause that, that shields the United States from litigation. And we should remember that in the Brazil cotton case, our marketing loans, our loan deficiency payments, and the countercyclical payments were all uh, interpreted as having had a price suppressing effect in the world market, driving down the world market prices to the adverse effect, uh, with an adverse effect on farmers in other countries who grow those commodities and get their entire income uh, from the market. Some pay those who say we shouldn't reopen the 2002 Farm Bill. Uh, are wrong, because, uh, are wrong uh, in the sense that we have to reopen the 2002 Farm Bill for at least three er in at least three areas. We've already heard that sugar, with the January 1st, 2008 opening of our sugar market, uh, with Mexican sugar having free access to the U.S. market, we have to change the sugar program. It cannot continue unchanged. Uh, we have the fruit and vegetable exclusion in our direct payments. Uh, the WTO uh, decision on cotton in the Brazil cotton case uh, said that we have to change that, or it gets, or they get counted as amber box, and in which case we have been in violation of the Uruguay round commitments every year since uh, the 2002 Farm Bill was passed. And we also have a number of things that we haven't fixed in the cotton program that were mandated in the Brazil cotton decision. We have gotten rid of the uh, export subsidies and the so-called Step 2 subsidies. We've changed our export credit guarantees. 
But the case concluded that marketing loans, loan deficiency payments, and countercyclical payments all have contributed to the price suppressing effect. And if we don't fix them, they're going to impose tariff, import tariffs uh, on other American products uh, imported into Brazil. Or they have threatened, uh, to the surprise of a lot of people, uh, to bust patents on pharmaceuticals and allow Brazilian pharmaceutical companies to produce uh, pharmaceutical products that are under patent in the United States. Now, that would bring some political opposition on the Hill that might actually force change in the cotton program. Whether Brazil could actually pull that off, I'm not sure, but they are definitely, uh, they are definitely talking about it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Professor Thompson. Um, we have just a few minutes for discussion before we break for lunch upstairs. Uh, just to reiterate the rules of engagement, please wait for the microphone to come to you before asking your question and state clearly your name and affiliation and, if appropriate, to whom on the panel your question is addressed. Um, I think that, yeah. And please get right to the point of your question. We only have a few minutes. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Hi. Mary Iris of the National Foreign Trade Council. I just have a quick question on the green box issue, because in the Doha round, as you know, uh, there are calls for uh, revising the criteria for green box. So if one of our efforts uh, along the lines of ag reform here at home is to have more green box uh, programs, how do you see the calls for revision of green box criteria uh, impacting our ability to have more green box programs here at home? Is that a question for... Certainly there are calls to tighten the, tighten the constraints on what can be uh, treated in the green box. But my sense is that everybody is more concerned about getting rid of trade-distorting subsidies, and most of the rest of the world is willing to acquiesce in the reality uh, that there are probably going to have to be increases in green box payments to substitute for some of the reduction in amber box payments in order to sell this whole package politically in both the United States and Western Europe. So I see this as a round that gets Amberbox under control, and uh, probably the next round would be the round when we'd, we'd start tightening the, tightening the screws on the green box. I, I would concur with that. I, you know, I'm one is an uh, inherit of, of the lesser of evils, and uh, the green box is you know, certainly a preferred to the yellow. I'm a little bit concerned, even though with our offer on expanding the blue box, is because I, I'm very concerned that the blue box just becomes another uh, form of programs that lead to similar distortions in the marketplace, and we have to be very cautious about how we allow that to be designed. Okay. Uh, yes, that's my boss, so I better pick him. Griswold with the Cato Institute. Uh, we heard Secretary Johan say we need a farm policy that's in the interest of farmers and ranchers. The president has said the same thing. It's kind of a mantra. But 98% of Americans aren't farmers, and 99.5% of Americans get no subsidies. They, they pay for them. And I just wondered, you know, shouldn't we have an agricultural policy, it's kind of a rhetorical question, that serves the interest of Americans and American national interests rather than a very small slice of society? And I guess a more practical question is, what can we do to kind of change the debate so that the focus isn't on what's good for a cotton farmer in Lubbock or a rice farmer in Arkansas, but what's good for the 110 million American households that are out there trying to feed themselves and earn a living every day and our, our broader interests 
in the world. <laughs> I'll just say, uh, Dan, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And that's you know, the point I made, and I didn't elaborate on it very much, is that we need to develop an alternative to the status quo. And I'll just use an example of my two home state senators and Senator Feinstein and Boxer. I mean, you got California that we're not heavily dependent, or we don't grow a lot of program crops. It's like less than 9% of our farmers get any subsidies whatsoever. But Feinstein and Boxer both voted for the 2002 Farm Bill. Uh, that wasn't even the interest of our dairy industry or the specialty crop industry. Well, why did they do that? Well, in large part because we didn't develop an alternative to present to them, to give them a, a, you know, something that they could vote for that they understood was in the broader interest of the country, plus some of the specific constituencies in California. And that's where all the groups that are now looking at farm you know, program reform is we really need people to come together to understand that we have to find a way that we can develop this alternative that meets the broader needs of this country. It could even be the interest in Silicon Valley that are so dependent on export markets that are now realizing that the greatest impediment to maximizing trade liberalization in our bilaterals as well as Doha has been our present farm programs. And how do we get, you know, the manufacturing, the technology, the 75% of agriculture that's not getting subsidies, as well as the environmental community, the nutrition community, and a whole host of other folks together to rally around one clear alternative? And the promise for success here is that if you go back to 2002, there was a substitute on the floor that was voted on. It wasn't a very good alternative, but it was uh, better than probably uh, what eventually was enacted into law. It got almost 200 votes. You know, it wasn't that short of, of passing. And that was without a whole lot of work being done in terms of developing this broad-based coalition. And that's what we have to be disciplined on in this process. Develop an alternative, market that alternative, bring a broader coalition, and we have the potential to isolating the program crops. And I think it's one that, uh, you know, I'm a militant when it comes to this, is that the program crop guys are not going to voluntarily agree to reforms unless they have the fear of God put in them that they're not going to be able to sustain the status quo. And we have to build that coalition that creates a great deal of concern. Well, did you want to offer an, an, another, question. another question? Anyone else? No. Well, okay. oh, sorry. And top while I'm here. Thank you. This on, um, Ann Tutwiler, Hewlett Foundation. Um, Cal, I'd just like to follow up on your call for this broader coalition, which obviously Hewlett has paid, played a role in trying to pull some of those folks together. Um, one of the missing pieces so far that played a huge role, as you know, in the 95 Farm Bill debate has been the agribusiness community. What role do you see your community and others playing, you know, famously, I think someone from Yum Brands made the statement that we have, you know, workers in every single congressional district in the, in the country. That can be hugely powerful if the agribusiness community can really come to the table and play a big role. And what, what role do you see them playing? Well, you know, um, on behalf of the Food Products Association, which will be uh, merging with the grocery manufacturers or GMA, so we'll have 
almost all the food and beverage companies that are now will be under our one umbrella, is that one of the legislative priorities has already been identified as moving to a more market-oriented foreign policy. And so we have uh, Sarah Thorne, who's here today, that is uh, you know in, involved in the trade efforts as well as uh, some of these issues, is that we, I think you're seeing greater interest in terms of getting more engaged. The stakes are becoming clear. And in particular, what happened just last year with the availability of sugar uh, with a lot of our member companies that let alone the price of it. I mean, it was just the availability of it, which was a direct function of a flawed policy that we have in this country, is that has been a wake-up call to, I think, a lot of, uh, of our member companies to say, you know what, we have to invest some of our political capital to make reform. For the first time this year, too, I, in my conversations with the Chamber of Commerce as well as the National Association of Manufacturing, based on the heavy-handed approach that Sugar took in the CAFTA round as well as in the Australian bilateral, is that there is a growing awareness among them that they need to be investing some political capital for reform, too, providing that there is a viable alternative that has a, you know, a potential for being politically successful. One last question, if we have one. Yes. Sure. <laughs> I'm uh, Rick Schwartz, and as Cal and others have suggested, there are efforts underway to build a left-right alliance of growers and the left-out farmers, environmental groups, fiscal conservatives, businesses, uh, human rights groups concerned, like Oxfam and others concerned about the poor around the world. We're coming together because of a shared interest that the past cannot dictate the future. So I'll just invite any and all of you, we'll, we'll contact you uh, after this program, to join forces with us. We're going to hold a meeting toward the end of September to try to bring more into this effort. And a big thanks to Cato and to Cal and to Professor Thompson for your leadership. That was not a question. That's all right. Thank you very much. Well, if you'd like to join us as um, sandwiches and brownies, my favorite, upstairs, uh, please come and join us for some subsidized food products. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.